Welcome to those in the sanctuary and joining us online today. Today we learn a powerful lesson on seeing and believing from the story of the man born blind in John 9. And this whole story starts with a question posed by one of the disciples who was just intending to start a theological discussion. But Jesus makes his theological point not with words, but with action, by changing a life forever. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in sussing out blame for the world's brokenness. What he came to do is heal it by bringing people into a brand new relationship with God through his redeeming work and our answering faith. And while those who believe in him see and they rejoice in this miracle as his answer, strangely, many of those who see this miracle first seem to go out of their way to avoid believing. So as this story so clearly shows us, seeing is not believing. And those who see and those who turn out to be blind to faith are the very opposite of what we expect in this story, leaving ourselves to ask, what blinds us to being able to see what God is doing in us and in the world around us? What keeps us from seeing Jesus' work as his answer to our need? What keeps us from seeing and believing that what Jesus does is good news for us? I think often for us, the stumbling block is the very human question, why? And that's where this story starts. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Basically, why do bad things happen, Jesus? And specifically, why did this bad thing happen to this guy? Whose fault was it? I mean, we know the answer is sin, but since he was born blind, it couldn't be his sin, could it? Was it his parents' fault? And while that sounds horrible to us and incredibly rude to say in front of this guy, it was actually the popular theological thinking of the day. And Pastor Darren referenced this last week. If someone was experiencing a challenge, it was assumed that God was punishing them for something. And biblically, through the prophets, God did sometimes intentionally allow the consequences of human actions to be felt by them, which is a common parenting tool. Because as a kid, if you break a window, your parent makes you put in the work to pay to fix it, so you learn the value of a window and of being a good neighbor, so you learn the responsibility when it's possible to make right for others what you have broken. Is that punishment? Is it discipline? Yes, but for the good of that kid's development and future. But when a kid falls and skins their knee, it's not because their parent was mad at them. It's because the sidewalk was broken. And in the same way, to try to attach a theological link between every hardship in a person's life and some specific misdeed of their own grossly oversimplifies how life actually works and underestimates the real power of sin and evil in the world. Because do we really think we only feel the consequences of our own choices and no one else's? Do we really think being born into a world already broken won't impact us? And yet it's amazing how often, like the disciples, people still look for a one-on-one -on -one correlation of sin and punishment when it comes to suffering. We want a cut and dried answer to why, to assign blame 
so we can turn a blind eye to another's suffering, or to imagine we can have some kind of control over avoiding a similar hurt ourselves. And while there are choices that will help you live safer, healthier, holier lives than other choices, all those choices that are in our control exist in a world that's largely not in our control, a world already broken that we continue to break in our own unique and precious ways. But the disciples want to know why. Why this guy, Jesus? They demand a reason for his suffering as if suffering were unusual. But why should that be when we live in a world where nothing is exempt? This world is temporary, under the order of decay. Nothing is without change. People, plants and animals, age and wither and die. Rocks and mountains erode. Landscapes change. This is the world we live in. You'd think we'd have figured that out by now. So truly, what is surprising is that we are surprised when things change us, when we're hit with illness, when we age. Our financial situation changes when loved ones die. We're surprised and shocked and even outraged. We demand of the Lord an answer for this. Why? Because somewhere deep down, we have a powerful feeling this is not the way life is supposed to be. Somehow, without knowing it, we all know there is something eternal that is more true than the world we now see. Somewhere deep inside, we have a longing for an existence without decay that changes not toward death, but toward increasing life, where each day gets deeper and wider and fuller, more interesting and more lovely than the day before. Somewhere deep inside us, we know there is a life like that. And we have a longing and a hunger for it, for knowing and sharing in God's eternal life, for heavenly life. So much so that in spite of the fact that we live in a world saturated with brokenness and death, we're shocked every time we experience it and demand to know why life is not the way it should be. So Jesus, why was this man born blind? But Jesus doesn't answer that question, why? Because other than being an interesting theological conversation, which I think is really what the disciples were looking for anyway, about how a thousand broken human choices end up creating the broken environment that resulted in this particular brokenness of this blindness from birth, even if we could know that answer, why, what good does it do for this man's life now? The answer to why in this situation has no relevance, sheds no light on who this man is or what God wants for him now. Instead, Jesus dismisses that assumption of a direct sin-suffering correlation, saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But here and now, God's works will be revealed in him. Jesus answers the disciple question why, not with because he, but with so I can. Because this is where God is at work now. God is in the eternal now. He was there in the past. He is there in the future. All times are now to God. So if we're going to meet with God, where we meet him will always be now. Now, in the moment you put your life in the hands of Jesus, God's glory will be revealed in you. This man was born blind to see the glory of God in his life. 
Peter was born a fisherman to see the glory of God in his life. You were born to see the glory of God in your life. Wherever you are right now is where it begins. Will you trust Jesus to show you what he sees for you now? That's what happens in John 9. This story is so delightful. Jesus has this way of making the invisible seem, showing they also matter in the greater story of the redemption his kingdom is bringing about. And although mystified by suddenly being the center of everyone's attention, this man is unexpectedly and delightfully holding his own all through the story. Imagine what his life had been like before meeting Jesus. In the time in which he lived, being born blind left him with few options. No one expected he'd ever be able to do anything but beg. So being unable to see had also made him largely invisible to others, just part of the background. And then one day out of the blue, when Jesus and his disciples walked by, his life suddenly became a sign of the arriving kingdom of God by someone smearing mud and spit on his eyes and telling him to go to wash it off in the pool of Siloam and God's works would be revealed in him. Now, he was obviously going to go wash off the spit and mud off his face somewhere because gross, but <laughs> choosing to go where Jesus sent him was an act of faith. And the text tells us, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Came home seeing. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Seeing everything for the very first time? People noticed. And they asked each other, is that the blind guy? No, it can't be. Kind of looks like him. Until finally he says, yes, it's me. Ironic, isn't it, that after years of begging every day in the same spot, when he's finally able to look his neighbors in the eye and see them for the very first time, they're the ones who aren't sure they recognize who he is. <laughs> They'd been able to see him for years, but did they ever see him? And now that he can see, they don't have any idea who it is they're looking at. If he's not blind anymore, who is he? And then an even stranger thing happens. When this blind man's eyes are opened and he can finally see, those around him start to doubt their eyes. It's impossible that you can see. Well, I can though. <laughs> How did this happen? Well, some guy put mud on my eyes, told me to wash. I washed and now I see. That can't be right. We need someone with authority to weigh in and tell us what's actually going on here. So they drag him to the God experts, the Pharisees, and demand, what do you think? And hearing the story, some of them said, well, since this happened on the Sabbath, this Jesus can't be from God because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and this has got to be some form of work, right? Healing? I'm pretty sure we made a rule about that. So if he doesn't follow the rules that we set up to honor God, he clearly can't be from God. But then another God expert chimed in, but if he isn't from God, he wouldn't be able to heal, would he? Isn't that prophesied in Isaiah and Jeremiah and throughout the Psalms that in God's power the blind will see? So if we're saying this isn't God's power, whose is it? So they asked the man, what do you think? And his answer, in light of what's happened, I say he's a prophet. God used prophets to heal people in the past, Elijah, Elisha. So from what he knew of the history of God with his people, that was his guess, which is a very faithful, thoughtful thoroughly biblical answer from this man formerly blind, which makes it all the more strange that the biblical scholars were so resistant to the idea that God might actually be doing this. 
What could be blinding them to the truth right in front of their eyes? Well, let's take a look at the options. Option A, if Jesus was a prophet God was using to heal on the Sabbath, that would mean their Sabbath rules didn't reflect what God wanted. That their rule enforcement was hindering God's glory rather than reinforcing it. They didn't want to see that. And if they acknowledged this miracle as the work of God, then they'd have to acknowledge Jesus' authority and listen to him. And they weren't interested in giving that kind of power to someone who wasn't one of them. I mean, for crying out loud, they were Pharisees, and this was a carpenter from Nazareth. But option B, if they said this healing wasn't from God, that he was a false prophet because he didn't follow their rules that God obviously approved, then were they saying there was another power that could miraculously restore the broken? Wouldn't that be giving glory to something other than God? Also not a good option for them. Then a thought occurred to them, option C. Maybe this man wasn't really healed because he was never blind at all. Maybe this was all just an elaborate setup. What a relief that would be. Call in his parents. If we can get them to confess he was never really blind, this whole situation will just go away. But when they called in his terrified parents, they very carefully just gave the facts. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind, but we don't know anything about this healing. If you want to know anything about that, you'll have to ask him. So no help there. And going to great lengths to avoid believing what they see, they now look to discredit Jesus. So they go back to the man and they grill him again, this time revealing what they're looking for, dirt. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. We'd like your sworn statement to that effect, please. And the man responds, how would I know that? <laughs> I never met him before today. Assigning sinner status, that's your department apparently, all I can say with absolute certainty is, I was blind, now I can see. Bah! Well, what did he do to you? He must have done something wrong. I already told you. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Ooh, that gets their goat. Because he absolutely knows that's not why they're asking. Because they started this conversation by insisting Jesus must be a sinner. I think he's making fun of them a little bit here. Because he knows they're out of options. Either they let themselves see the truth, which he so clearly sees. That God is at work in this man Jesus. And that means they should start listening to him and learning from him. Or they will have to choose to turn a blind eye to what their God is doing right in front of them. They'll have to humbly admit they've been blind if they're going to be able to see what he's showing them right now. And if they're being honest with themselves, they don't have any other options. If they're asking again about what Jesus did, all they're going to find is a road to discipleship that they clearly don't want to walk. That's what this man who had been blind now sees. But since they've got nothing, no reason not to believe what they see, they defensively turn it into an us versus them. They put their power to use to demand that he choose a side. We're not ignoring God. We're just going with what we already know. We know God spoke to Moses, and we already have a whole system in place for honoring what Moses taught. It's been working for us. But this Jesus, we don't know where he's from. Why should we risk everything by listening to him? And the man can no longer stand to keep silent. Here's an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from? 
yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And then he takes a deep breath and he lays it out. He takes his stand on what he believes, speaking clearly what they've been desperately trying not to see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You had option A, B, and C. C's out. You know I was actually blind. And if you're honest with yourself, B's out. This is clearly the power of God. So all you have left is option A. Jesus is from God. If I can see the truth, why can't you? And furious, they yell at him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're trying to teach us? And they drove him out of the synagogue. And now we've come full circle. Back to the original assumption that having been born blind, this man must have been a sinner deserving only God's punishment. But what then does it mean when to God's glory, what was broken from the first moment he was born is completely restored in a moment by Jesus meeting him where he is now? If one who was born entirely in sins can receive this kind of complete healing and redemption, why would we not want to hear that kind of good news? Because the truth is, we are all sinners deserving only God's punishment. But as Jesus told us in John 3:17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Born into a world already broken, Jesus doesn't call us to focus on the power of sin that holds us captive, but on the Savior who comes to set us free. The power of sin to delude us and to trap us is very real, but so is the redeeming power of our Savior. And it's only by looking to Him that we find the freedom to actually start to grow into the things He has for us. Where your attention is focused, that's what you see. And that's why the Pharisees, who see themselves as the sin police, only look for more sin. And in doing so, they miss the miracle. They're unable to see God's answer for a sinful world is the one sent to set us free right in front of them. And the one who does see and rejoice in what God is doing, they throw out. And knowing that he'd been throw out, thrown out, lest he get too discouraged, Jesus immediately went to find him and asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him, and the one speaking to you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So what should we learn from this? What makes us spiritually blind? What are these traps that the Pharisees fall into? Well, I think first what we see is an unwillingness to face and confess our own blindness, pride. If we think we already know all the answers, we stop listening to the one who is the answer. 
They had everything they needed to see the amazing moment in which they were living, to welcome the Messiah who opens the eyes of the blind, to see God at work with them, with them in ways they could only imagine, but they'd rather not because they'd rather still be the ones who above all others could claim we see. And in doing so, they missed the Savior they'd been waiting for. The Pharisees already had a definition of righteousness, which was admittedly impossible. And in light of that, the system seemed to be graded on a curve. You can feel good about yourself and look down on others if you're better than most. But Jesus came to open up a way for us to receive a new kind of righteousness, the gift of his sacrificial, obedient love laid down for us. If his self-sacrificial love is the source of our righteousness, how do we imitate a righteousness like that? Discipleship and pursuit of that kind of righteousness in our lives looks very different than the Pharisees' approach. First, to avoid spiritual blindness to faith, we need to confess we need Jesus' help to see what his righteousness looks like in us as we both receive it and as we live into it. The second blinder is unwillingness to trust that God's intervention in our lives is by his supernatural power. Supernatural is beyond what naturally happens in the world. People are so quick to dismiss what Jesus does, what God does, just because it would be impossible for us. But that's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> if our righteousness, our eternal salvation was something we could naturally achieve, we wouldn't need a Savior. Jesus does the impossible. The sinless Son of God lays down his life on the cross and rises three days later to new life to make a way into God's eternal life for us because that's impossible for us to do by any human righteousness. Only Jesus' love and sacrifice makes the impossible possible for us. Why then would we disbelieve that what is impossible for us is God's doing for us? The third blinder, for want of a better word, is cynicism. This is a big one in our world today. Getting stuck looking at blame rather than looking at the Lord for hope. Rather than entertain possibility, the Pharisees look for reasons to discredit and dishonor Jesus, thinking their function as sin police will get them some kind of points, if not with God, then with people. Rather than embrace a hope that's beyond their ability to control, they seek to shut down anyone's hope outside the system they managed, hope people were finding in Jesus. And this is where the man who had been born blind had an advantage. Having lived his life on the outside of that system, having seen how it often failed those who needed God the most, and having already encountered hope personified in the person of Jesus, he knew, no matter what the system told him, what he needed most was more of God. And when Jesus invited him to believe, he was more than ready to see who Jesus truly is. You see, when Jesus sees you, he doesn't see you as a test case for a theological discussion about the debilitating effects of sin on a life. He sees a life he wants to transform here and now by his redeeming work and your answering faith. Jesus didn't come to be the sin police. Jesus is sin's nemesis. 
He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He comes to usher in the beginning of a new creation, a new life that starts through him, where in believing we will see life made new. So, beloved, if you've gotten caught up in whatever situation you're in, in the question why, in the sin and brokenness of the world around you, in the sin and brokenness within you, and it's making your heart cry out, why, Lord? Bring it to him and know that Jesus wants to meet your why with, so I can. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you at work in us. Open our lives to your redeeming work in this moment now where you want to meet us and redeem us and lead us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see more and more of you so that we can help others to see you more too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.